My name is Roman Miller. I'm a professor of biology at Eastern Mennonite University. I want to talk today about a topic that is relatively new for me, and that's looking at the role of attachment. Attachment as a paradigm to understand a bit about ourselves and also as it relates to bioethics. I'm bringing along an Anabaptist perspective of theology, and uh, we'll try to in uh, well, let me see if I can advance this. There we go. To try to bring that along. I want to begin by talking about three attachment stories. They're metaphoric in nature. Then I want to define and describe what I mean by attachment, what I mean by Anabaptism. And then I'm going to go to the biology that supports the centrality of attachment Finally, a little bit more about Anabaptism as it relates to bioethics, and uh, conclude with that. <clears throat> this particular picture, and I'm sorry the lights are too high, you can't see it very well, is of a ewe sheep that we have. In fact, we don't have her anymore. She was number 20. And this picture shows her quads that she birthed. Uh, this would have been on Valentine's Day a few years ago. This is a wool sheep, a polypay sheep. She was mated to a Barbados black belly ram. And two of the lambs, I was there when they were birthed. They were twins. They came out together. And I thought she was finished. So I left. The lambs had uh, nursed the mother. And I came back a little bit later and found two more lambs, these two in her pen. What's interesting from this photo, which was taken when the lambs were probably five or six weeks old, the typical pattern of grazing, we have a lot of sheep at that time, and first of all, the lambs would graze close to their mother. The lambs would also graze close to each other, and they often paired off in this way. Not always, but many times. And uh, it reflects attachment because these lambs, especially if these shared the same chorion, they had a lot of attachment uh, kinds of things that uh, created this bonding that was unique to them in many ways, as well as these two lambs. That's kind of the first illustrative story of attachment. And especially one more comment I would make about this. If you take one of these lambs and remove him or her from the scene, you have chaos. The lamb is crying, the ewe is crying, the other lambs are crying. Attachment is an important thing because it's an attachment that we find security. Second story I want to tell you is one that relates to you, and it describes probably your first experience in attachment when you were a very small creature, a very young embryo. And uh, this diagram over here describes early life. Uh, this diagram would represent fertilization. We would call that primarily day one. And then as this embryo migrates down the fallopian tube, it undergoes very rapid cell division, forms a marula, a ball of cells. Then you have some cell differentiation forming a blastocyst. And finally, this, this structure moves here into uh, the uterus. And uh, then this event of implantation begins to occur, probably starting around day six. And first of all, the um, embryo 
has what we call apposition, where it attaches very loosely to the edge of the uh, uterine lining. And then as time progresses, that attachment becomes more secure. And there's a whole host of genetic hormonal paracrine uh, signaling that goes on, some from the embryo to the maternal wall, some from the maternal wall to the embryo. Ultimately, as the day progresses or the days progress through about day nine, this embryo will penetrate into the wall and be attached. And all of us in this room, we've had a successful attachment. But many embryos do not attach successfully. Estimates vary somewhere between 40 to 60% fail to attach and therefore uh, never survive. This is an attachment story that you're probably very familiar with, one that Jesus gave. It's a horticultural story. And it describes the importance of attaching to the vine down here, which is represented by Jesus. If I want to survive, I need to be attached to the vine. If I am disattached, uh, I shrivel up and die. And so that, pre that brings us to a question. How do you form this attachment, which is spiritual, and how does that work in survival? What do we mean by attachment? It's a binding by personal ties of affection or sympathy. There are a lot of synonyms that sometimes are used, a bonding, reciprocal relationships, etc. I would want to adventure uh, several claims when we talk about attachment. One is that attachment is a universal thread that holds our life together. And there's some sub-ideas about that. Attachment uh, is a, an, an issue or a an event that can occur if there is accessibility. Can I get to you? Are you available? If I'm going to attach to you, if you're not accessible, I can't attach to you. Are you responsive? Will you meet with me? Will you engage me? Will you respect me? Will you help me when I need you? And that's especially true in a lot of kinds of attachment, whether it's a child with mother, spouse with spouse, if the spouse is not available for the other spouse, attachment begins to be thwarted. The second idea about attachment is that our biology enables our attachment. And probably in the last 15 years, this whole uh, understanding of how biology is involved in attachment has just blossomed. We know that there are factors, hormones that are involved, uh, codes, uh, genes that become expressed, the brain regions that uh, are changed as attachment is occurring or as attachment is broken. All of those different studies are there describing the biology. And finally, I also want to describe a little bit how Anabaptist theology identifies that attachment in a couple relationships. One is our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and our relationship together as we serve God. Those are important elements that I want to try to describe. This is a diagram I put together about a year ago trying to describe what I would understand to be some elements of attachment. So if you look at this uh, kind of a target, uh, there are several facets of attachment. There's an inner dimension, and this inner dimension has both a physical part. It's the hormones that flow. It's the neurological signaling that comes from the brain. It also has a metaphysical aspect. That's the emotive uh, feeling 
that arise from the soma, from the body. And then finally, here's the outer dimension. The outer dimension is how an individual responds uh, with an action to create the attachment, to break the attachment, to strengthen the attachment. It's the mother you standing still, licking her lamb to encourage the lamb to nurse. It's the human mother that cuddles her baby in her arms. It's the human father that goo-goos over his young baby child. All of those kinds of things are enhancing attachment. A couple comments about Anabaptism. Who were the Anabaptists? Anabaptists were a, uh, or Anabaptism is a contemporary Christian theological praxis. The emphasis is on practice rather than uh, maybe uh, theology because Praxis is understood. How you work out what you believe becomes really the important criteria. Grows out of the Radical Reformation in the 16th century. And from that movement, a group of men and women who were neither Catholic nor Protestant tried to uh, live a life and demonstrate a life. Oops. Sorry. That was uh, simply following Jesus. And martyrdom was an issue that many Anabaptists encountered and strongly influenced uh, that theology. The Anabaptists believed and practiced what Jesus taught. They believed the church was a voluntary community of gathered believers who were discerning needs and meeting needs of each other and also as a way to meet the needs of the world. Following Jesus is a way of, of uh, following Jesus is a path of nonviolence and peace. And that as followers of Jesus, we demonstrate suffering love, we promote justice, and live righteous lives. I want to now talk a little bit about some of the biological aspects of attachment. And uh, I'm going to, first of all, talk about oxytocin. There are really many biological factors that I could talk about. Oxytocin is a hormone, a small peptide hormone, that is synthesized by the hypothalamus of the brain, and it's released by the posterior pituitary. And uh, it becomes kind of a major signaling hormone that uh, is very closely involved in attachment. If you pick up a freshman biology text and you go to the endocrine chapter and they talk about oxytocin, they typically will give two uh, functions of oxytocin, and they're all female. One is it creates what we call milk letdown. And so when oxytocin is released from the brain of this cow, goes back to her udder, causes myoepithelial cells to contract, which pushes milk down into the lacteals, and so that when the calf is nursing, milk is available there. Another place that oxytocin is often seen is during uterine contractions at childbirth. And so the stimulus that goes along there in causing release of more oxytocin causes the uh, contractions and ultimately the birth. Well, most books, that's kind of where they stop. But males have oxytocin also. And uh, there are a lot of other elements about oxytocin, and I want to try to describe some of the attachment things. One of the interesting biological things probably in the last 10, 12 years have been studying animals that uniquely form attachment. This is a diagrammatic picture of a pine vole. Pine voles are rodent. Most rodents are polygamous. But pine voles are monogamous. They form these attachments. Now, there are other voles, meadow voles, for an example, that are polygamous. And one of the things that we've learned is that the array of hormones and their interactions of the pine voles 
and it's too complicated for me to explain in a moment, involving vasopressin and oxytocin, dopamine, and other things, uh, is a little bit different in these uh, pine voles. Their neuroreceptors for these hormones are localized in different concentrations and places in the brain. So there's really a biological kind of a thing that's going on with the pine voles. But it's not unique to pine voles. You find it in other animals that form attachment. So male squirrel monkeys, for an example, uh, when they have increased levels of oxytocin, they tend to have increased social contact. When you think about female animals that are birthing or in pregnancy, voles and rabbits and ewes, all of those have increased amounts of circulating oxytocin. And uh, that typically causes a lot of these maternal kinds of behaviors. Uh, a female mouse that has pups causing her to lick her pups or to bring them back to the nest if, if they are removed. Interestingly enough, California mice, which is a subspecies of mice, uh, they have biparental caring. And so in the case of the males, they have elevated levels of oxytocin during the time the young are born, which apparently stimulates their male roles in helping to care for things. Well, we're not rodents. We're humans. Does it work for us? And the answer, of course, is yes. There have been a lot of sociological studies, neurobiological studies, showing that oxytocin in humans also enhance uh, connective kinds of behaviors. The last one that's referred to is an interesting one uh, that came out a few years ago where a group of men were surveyed uh, before and after they were administered an exogenous amount of oxytocin. How do you do that? You can do it through nasal spray. And found that following this, the spraying of exogenous oxytocin, they were far more receptive to try to make connections uh, with others, which was an interesting thing. I move now to talk to you a little bit more about Anabaptist theology and try to show how that relates to attachment. We've heard today a couple times about Imago Dea, and uh, the other day also. I think my understanding uh, about that is that there's a primacy aspect of that, and that is primarily a relationship that is being described. It's a relationship that's initiated by God. God chose to create Amaga Day in human creation. God chose to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. God chose to communicate. And in response, uh, human, the human desires to find kind of this innate desire that we have to find something bigger than ourselves, regardless of the culture, uh, to find a God, something that's larger from that, is this sense to attach. An Anabaptist faith statement that's contemporary says, for an example, humans are made for relationship to God, to live in peace with others, and to take care of the rest of creation. All of that illustrates the attachment. The early Anabaptists emphasized uh, the communal part that's important. So if you're going to survive as a Christian, as a spiritual being in the, in, with God, you do so in community, where you discern the voice of the Spirit, where you discern Scripture. Uh, you, you experience of spiritual oneness. How do you make this attachment to God? The answer to that question is you don't make it. God does it. And that's the role of grace. Grace is the oxytocin of God that uh, enables 
myself, you, to become attached to God. Uh, Pilgrim Marpeck, an early 16th century Anabaptist, said, Grace is the act where God renews the divine image in man and makes the believer a participant in the divine nature. So grace is something that has a substance. And if you look at the bottom uh, quote here, uh, it's divine enablement, which flows from union with God and transforms an individual character such that uh, one is motivated to follow Jesus. So it's grace that does that. And Anabaptists, and not uniquely Anabaptists, Christians have various rituals which celebrate attachment. Baptism is one of those, where voluntarily individuals choose to identify with God and with the people of God. That's a symbol of attachment, and it represents that communion. Uh, is another example of that, the analogy of the bread, where individual grains are ground up, losing their identities to form flour, and ultimately one loaf. Jesus was transformed into our nature that we might become one bread, broken for one another, Hans Dink said. Since he became bread for us and was crushed and baked for our benefit, we should... Remember this in the breaking of the bread. I'm going to skip this slide. I've been helped by David Augsburger uh, in describing the role of attachment. And uh, one of his books that he wrote a couple of years ago called Dissident Discipleship, he describes how radical attachment to Jesus becomes the criteria for true spirituality and he describes a spirituality that, in essence, is a tripolar spirituality. Let me briefly explain what he's trying to say. He says that one can be monopolar spiritual, in which self becomes the primary object. You know, I'm, I'm opening myself, I'm finding myself, uh, I'm in tune with myself, that recognition of spirituality being part of me. That's monopolar spirituality. But he says a deeper spirituality is a bipolar one, where not only I recognize myself and my spirituality and my need, but I recognize that there is an other, there is a God, and it's that God that can meet my need. And as I commune and attach to, to God, I develop and I grow spiritual. Now, in many churches, the ultimate kind of act happens to occur sometimes on a Sunday morning when people stand and worship and raise their hands and praise God, and they feel this flow, this attachment to God. My God and I walk through the fields together and all that kind of a thing. Augsburger suggests, however, that that's not the ultimate in spirituality. He says the ultimate should be a tripolar one. It is not only God and myself, but it's myself and other. It's when I begin to recognize that because I'm attached to God and God is attached to me, I immediately have a responsibility to the other. Whether it's my brother or sister in church, whether it's the neighbor who is destitute and has a need, it's that uh, compassion kind of a thing, or whether it's my enemy. All of those individuals are people in God's image, and part of spirituality is to connect to those. So that if we come back to the model that I was describing uh, for attachment, and I earlier indicated that you have, these, uh, you have this inner aspect and you have this outer aspect. If attachment is really part of our nature, and if we are uh, 
fulfilling it in the way that God would have us, we have a whole array, and I gave a few examples here, of outward attachment behaviors. Parental child nurturing, for an example. Pair bonding, a marriage that lasts for life. A baptismal vow where I submit myself to my brothers and sisters in church, both to give counsel and to receive discipline. Uh, being part of a team where I'm joining together to help the team, not looking for my own welfare, but for the welfare of the team. Those are attachment behaviors. There's also something called reactive attachment disorder, where attachments are broken. And these are these kinds of behaviors. It's when parents abuse children. It's when couples divorce and separate. It's when churches divide. It's when uh, an individual hugs the basketball in playing for the team and always tries to shoot the basket because he or she wants to be the scorer. From an Anabaptist perspective, I would suggest that there are at least three aspects that are important in understanding bioethics. There is something that I would call an ethic of being, an ethic of relationship, and an ethic of action. And they're based on this understanding about who God is, who the triune God. There are attributes of God, and I would say the primary ones would be the holiness of God, God's love, and God's grace. And all of those attributes are accessible to human beings. So in a very primary way, the, eth the ethics of being is based on living righteously as an individual. I can't live righteous by myself, but it's God's grace that can transform my nature so that I can experience what it means to be holy and righteous in the sight of God. In a second aspect, the ethics of relationship primarily deals with this idea about grace. Just as God's grace enables me to live, to connect to God, it's that kind of grace that I extend to others and others extend to me. There are a couple things I could comment about my relationship with my wife. We love each other, and, uh, but we're not, I'm not perfect, my wife is not perfect. What covers those imperfections? It could be love, but it's grace. It's grace when I enable my wife to have her place and to put her in the front instead of myself, and you use grace with humility. And finally, ethics of action, that's what gears how we relate to others, suffering love, etc. And uh, I will conclude with just a look at this. On the one side of the slide, I've listed some bioethical issues. I could do many. And we've seen all of these, environmental pollution and fetal abortion, and go down through all of them. And the question is, how does attachment help us? Attachment in essence and the expression of attachment is a virtue ethic. It's, it's not a deontological one. It's not a list of rules, but it's an ethic that emerges from our being so that if I am transformed by God's grace, if I'm learning and I'm empowering others by extending grace to them, if I show agape suffering love at the expense of myself, that helps me understand how I participate in health care for the poor. That helps me understand that I don't pollute the environment and that even at cost to myself, I will work with integrity and help. That's what attachment can do for us. 
And I would venture to say that it can be a very powerful force in bioethics, and I recommend it, and I'm trying to learn about it. That's all I have to say. <laughs>